Hello and welcome to Midweek Reading on the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad Podcast. Over at my YouTube channel, I have over 100 videos where I read and respond to various books. What I'm about to play for you now is but one of those readings. So sit back, relax and enjoy Midweek Reading with me, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad on the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad Podcast. Good evening. Good evening. This is Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad. If you don't know me by now, uh, if you don't know by now, this is a series where I read various books. Uh, I literally read every, every, well, almost literally every word on every page. And then... Uh, give some commentary on it. So one, I'm not breaking uh, any copyright laws because it is a review and commentary, which is part of the Fair Use uh, Fair Use Act. And um, yes, so I've got this series, I've got uh, Total Life Prosperity, I've got a Letter to a Christian Nation, uh, I've got The Mystery of Acts, as well as this one here, um, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Uh, and also you can see down the bottom of the screen, uh, yeah, I have a podcast, which is anchor.fm forward slash tfadpod, but you can also find the podcast on Apple, Google, uh, Spotify, Breaker, and more. Or you can go to the website, www.tallfriendlyatheistdad.com. Anyway, so there's a part four in I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I am in the warm reading bed. Uh, I come to you live from Melbourne, by the way, hence my, my weird accent. Um, under the warm reading blanket and next to me is the warm reading sun who is very very snuggly anyway so I'm still in the uh, in the introduction of the of the book um, so anyway so starting on page for this section starting on page 29 uh, let me just get a little bit more snuggly and my son will get a little bit more snuggly. Oh, hello. So I'm trying to find the bookmark. It'd be a shame if I couldn't, shame if I couldn't find the bookmark. Um, yeah, so anyway, just before I get into the, just before I get into the reading, um, there are a few issues that Frank uh, Turek makes about, well, Frank Turek and Norman Geiser make about atheism, um, about epistemology. So I'm just moving the, moving the pillows. Um, yeah, he seems to treat atheism as its own religion, where atheism is more a position on the, uh, an opinion on the existence of gods. Um, and there's a few more, there's a few more errors uh, about this, but yeah, go through uh, parts one, two, three, uh, listen to those. But anyway, um, could I get a, before you go to sleep, uh, warm readings, could I get a click from you? Oh, it's a very under the blanket click. All right. Oh, that's better. Okay. Second. Notice that we are starting at the point of complete scepticism. That is, we are starting with a person who says he doesn't even believe in truth. We need to start there, because if the prevailing view of the culture is right, that there is no truth, then it can't be true that a theistic God exists, or that there is a true word from that God. However, if there is truth, and that truth can be known, then we can go on to investigate the truth of God's existence, 
and the other points that follow, e.g. miracles are possible, the New Testament is historically reliable, and so forth. Third, if this line of reasoning is sound, and that's a big if that this book will attempt to show, it necessarily disproves other religions where they differ from the Bible. This sounds incredibly arrogant and presumptuous, but we'll address that later. This would not mean that all other religions are completely false or that they have no truth. Nearly all religions have some truth. We are simply saying that if the Bible is true, then any specific claim that contradicts the Bible must be false. For example, if the Bible is true, and it says that there is a God beyond the universe who created and sustains the universe, theism, then any claim that denies theism, e.g. atheism, must be false. Likewise, if the Bible is true, and it claims that Jesus rose from the dead, then the Quranic denial of that fact must be false. By the way, the reverse would also be true. If the evidence showed that the Quran was true, then the Bible would be false wherever it contradicted the Quran. Uh, fourth, we give evidence for Christianity because we ought to live our lives based on truth. Socrates once said that the unexamined life is not worth living. We believe that the unexamined faith is not worth believing. Furthermore, contrary to popular opinion, Christians are not supposed to just have faith. Christians are commanded to know what they believe and why they believe it. They are commanded to give answers to those who ask, 1 Peter 3.15, and to demolish arguments against the Christian faith, 2 Corinthians 10.4-5. Since God is reasonable, Isaiah 1.18, and wants us to use our reason, Christians don't get brownie points for being stupid. In fact, using reason is part of the greatest commandment, which according to Jesus is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Finally, we are often asked if Christianity has so much evidence behind it, then why don't more people believe it? Our answer? Although we believe the evidence we're about to present shows that the Bible is true beyond reasonable doubt. No amount of evidence can compel anyone to believe it. Belief requires assent, not only of the mind, but also of the will. While many non-Christians have honest intellectual questions, we have found that many more seem to have a volitional resistance to Christianity. In other words, it's not that they don't have evidence to believe, it's that they don't want to believe. The great atheist Friedrich Nietzsche exemplified this type of person. He wrote, If one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in him. And it is our preference that decides against Christianity, not arguments. Obviously, Nietzsche's disbelief was based on his will, not just his intellect. Alright, so they go through a few points about what they're trying to do and how they're trying to frame it. Um, so he did get one thing correct where... Um, actually, no, actually half correct. We, he finally says that atheism is more of a claim 
um, yeah, hold on, we're in the line here. The, uh, there is God beyond the universe who created the saints. Then any claim that denies theism, i.e. atheism, must be false. Um, this again goes to the heart of what atheism, well, one of the questions what atheism actually is. Is it just a lack of belief? Is it a belief that there is no gods? Is it, uh, it's a bit of a, bit of a tricky one, but yeah. Otherwise, um, uh, where was the line that he just mentioned um, about Christians getting brownie points for just having, uh, for just having faith? The problem, though, is is that um, numerous Christians I've come across uh, in my various Twitter debates, they um, they tend to rely on God of the gaps a lot, um, and faith is that that stopgap to get from the weak argument to the conclusion that they that they want whereas if you uh you want to jump in okay we're gonna snuggle up mm. Mm. hey squishy squishy boy sorry my son just climbed back into bed after a quick You keep getting taller and taller. Must be all that food you're eating. Hmm. Uh, the joys of having uh, teenage kids. Well, you're almost there. You're almost there. Um, now, what was... Yeah, so... Um, and there was, a, there was a thing I was saying the other day about... Um, or to a, on Twitter where... Um, oh, what was it? Oh, if I remember it, I'll uh, I'll come back to it. But um, uh, and this last part is that if Christ if Christianity has so much evidence, why don't more people believe it? Um, one of the things about uh, presenting evidence is that not only do you have to have the evidence, but the evidence also has to say what you think it's saying. Um, and this is the this is the thing. It's a bit like um. I suppose it's a bit like um, what's a good analogy? It's a bit like uh, not finding any cookies in the cookie jar, and uh, seeing uh, someone run away from the kitchen. Now, are they running away from the kitchen because they were afraid of getting caught? Are they running away from the kitchen because you know they took the the cookie from the cookie jar? Are they running away because there was something happening in their bedroom? That their their phone was going off. Um, so if you just, like as an analogy if you just present a basic fact that oh the cookies are missing and my son uh ran away from the kitchen as soon as i walked into the kitchen you know you, you can present the case that he's running away from the kitchen because he knows he's guilty for stealing the cookie out of the cookie jar whereas it could be something like you know he was busting to go to the toilet at just the same time that i walked into the kitchen or it could be that you know um, he's upset with me for something I did to him or, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, so even though there's evidence, you have to then test that evidence against uh, competing hypotheses to work out what actually uh, makes more sense. And then you also have to be honest about it as well. So, um, and yes, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche is an atheist, but he doesn't speak for all atheism. And this is... Uh, yeah, a bit of a like I I can't say I've read any Nietzsche I can't say I've been influenced by him um, but anyway back to the book 
At this point, a skeptic might reverse the argument by claiming that it's the Christians who simply wants to believe. True, many Christians believe only because they want to and cannot justify their belief with evidence. They simply have faith that the Bible is true. And merely wanting something to be true doesn't make it so. However, what we are saying is that many non-Christians do the same thing. They take a blind leap of faith that their non-Christian beliefs are true simply because they want them to be true. In the ensuing chapters, we'll take a hard look at the evidence to see who has to take the bigger leap. Uh, actually, this is probably the most correct paragraph that they've uh, written so far. It's taken 30 pages to, to get there, but they've actually managed to get a uh, get a couple of things right. Um, there are Christians who believe simply because they want to believe. Uh, you know, the, the belief gives them comfort and hope and joy and peace and a feeling of security. And there are atheists who believe because they can't, you know, um, they've rejected without sufficient basis that they don't want to believe in God or they, you know, they haven't honestly evaluated the arguments. And so there are some uh, atheists who believe for bad reasons as well. Um, so yeah, so I will give a uh, guys a credit. Yes, they've got a they've got a paragraph right. The skeptic might then ask, but why would anyone want Christianity to be false? Why would anyone not want the free gift of forgiveness? Good question. But we think the answer lies in the volitional factors we touched on earlier. Namely, many believe that accepting the truth of Christianity would require them to change their thinking, friends, priorities, lifestyles, or morals, and they are not quite willing to give up control over their lives in order to make those changes. They believe that life would be easier and more fun without such changes. Perhaps they realize that while Christianity is all about forgiveness, it's also about denying yourself and carrying your cross. Indeed, Christianity is free, but it can cost you your life. Um, Alright, so... The skeptic might ask that. Um, but it's not more why we want Christianity to be false. It's more that why should we accept that it's true? Um, and like when you talk about the free gift of forgiveness, it's like you talk about the free gift of forgiveness from the person who's condemning you uh, in, in the first place, and it's a bit, you know... Um, and then when it gets to uh, lifestyle changes... Um, it tends to be the more fundamentalists who enforce those uh, lifestyle changes. If you go to a progressive or a progressive or a very liberal church, you know they're very lax about how they, you know, how they uh, want you to, or says want you to do things, or how they want you to be, or that kind of stuff. But then you do get towards you know fundamentalism, where you know if you come in with long hair, then or you're sort of, you're seen as a rebel, or if you even have like a small tattoo, it's like oh geez, what do you got that on, or if you come, you know, five minutes late, or you're setting a bad example, stuff like that. But um, and this is one of the things is that because Christianity is a collection of beliefs rather than a uh, rigidly enforced doctrine with a uh, resolution dispute mechanisms, then yeah, we 
yeah, like, you know, anyone can call themselves a Christian as long as they, you know, hold some basic beliefs. But there's no, like, complaints line or a help desk or a, uh, an arbitration uh, resolution mechanism. Anyway, back to the book. There's a difference between proving a proposition and accepting a proposition. We might be able to prove Christianity is true beyond reasonable doubt, but only you can choose to accept it. Please consider this question to see if you are open to acceptance. If someone could provide reasonable answers to the most significant questions and objections you have about Christianity, reasonable to the point that Christianity seems true beyond a reasonable doubt, would you then become a Christian? Think about that for a moment. If your honest answer is no, then your resistance to Christianity is emotional or volitional, not merely intellectual. No amount of evidence will convince you, because evidence is not what's in your way. You are. In the end, only you know if you are truly open to the evidence for Christianity. Alright, sorry to be clicking so much, but yeah, they just say so much that it's worth responding to. Um... This is uh, geez, a bit of a hard one because um, I think there's a difference between proving God exists and proving the claims of Christianity, but then actually wanting to become a Christian. Um, you know, like, for example, it's like, you know, um, I could give you all the evidence that Joe Biden is president and that Joe Biden won the won the election, but would you accept that Joe Biden is the current president of uh, the United States of America. And there is a purport, there's a, uh, I suppose, a significant minority of people in the US who don't accept that Joe Biden is president, even though you can prove it to them. Um, and again, a telltale atheist on, uh, on YouTube. He's got lots of videos about um, evangelical pastors who don't believe that don't, who don't believe that Donald Trump isn't president, or who believe that Donald Trump is president in the spiritual realm, or something something really weird like that. Uh, would I become a Christian? It's a bit of a hard one, because I think... Uh, yeah, it's... I'm not going to say no, but I think you have to... We have to work out that... Um, what it actually means to actually be a Christian rather than to know that the the points of Christianity are true and that's kind of a um, yeah, bit of a bit of a hard one anyway, back to the book one beauty of God's creation is this if you're not willing to accept Christianity then you're free to reject it this freedom to make choices even the freedom to reject truth is what makes us moral creatures and enables each of us to choose our ultimate destiny. This really hits at the heart of why we exist at all and why God might not be as overt in revealing himself to us as some would like. For if the Bible is true, then God has provided each of us with the opportunity to make an eternal choice to either accept him or reject him. And in order to ensure that our choice is truly free, he puts us in an environment that is filled with evidence of his existence, but without his direct presence, a presence so powerful that it could overwhelm our freedom and thus negate our ability to reject him. 
In other words, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe, yet has also left an ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. In this way, God gives us the opportunity either to love him or to reject him without violating our freedom. In fact, the purpose of this life is to make that choice freely and without coercion. For example, by definition, uh, for love, by definition, must be freely given. It cannot be coerced. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote, The irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of God's scheme forbids him to use, merely to override a human will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. All right. Um, a few problems here with that line of theology is that um, we see numerous times where God um, does make himself known. Uh, God does have conversations with people, but God does not override free will in those in those conversations um just trying to think what's the first example um when i think abraham when abraham was uh arguing over over um sodom and gomorrah in order to get lot out and god kept uh, abraham kept on twisting god's arm to uh reduce the number of righteous people he would need to not destroy the city you know um uh, Moses, uh, God had face-to-face -face conversations with Moses, and God was, uh, Moses was able to tw twist God's arm into uh, you know relenting from a from a decision. So far from God's presence overwhelming our own free will, it seems that with enough of the right words, we can override God's free will. Was well, I override? But we can change God's mind on something. Um, so this C.S. Lewis line about you know. Um, even a mere hint of God's presence would be enough to override our free will. The Bible doesn't give that at all. Um, and even then, let's say um, with with Jesus, you know, if Jesus is you know the divine incarnation and manifestation of God, then we should see that in in the Gospels as well. But we see in the Gospels where people had the had the free will to reject Jesus. So. Um, yeah, so th this this whole thing about you know, well, even a little bit of God would cause you to you know, lose your lose your free will. No, that is that is definitely not the case. Um, and even then, this is a this whole thing that he's left us in an environment with enough evidence. Um, no, I don't believe that is the case. It's a very uh, uh, was a thing like you ha you kind of like for the case to be made, you have to presume the God that you're trying to prove exists in the first place. It's a bit of a bit of a circular argument. Um, um, yeah, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe, yet has also left from ambiguities not to compel the unwilling. Well, no. Um, and this is a, a thing that I uh, think I called the Donald Trump challenge, where, you know, like, if you wanted to convince me that Donald Trump exists... I don't need to a priori believe that Donald Trump exists. You can convince me in any number of rational ways that Donald Trump exists. Um, we don't need to resort to esoteric theology 
you, know, you can show me his birth certificate, the list of president, list of presidents, uh, the university, the hotel, the golf courses, the streets, um, his 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 wives, um, his children. Um, there's actually a few lines of evidence you could. Whereas for God, um, it seems to just not not be there. But anyway, back to the book. We hope the evidence we present in this book will, in some small way, woo you to God. Keep in mind that it's not our evidence, it's His. We are simply compiling it in a logical order. By using real-world stories and illustrations as often as possible, we intend to make this book readable and its reasoning easily accessible. It's not our evidence, it's His. Then why doesn't God just write the darn book? Don't get that. Turn the page. Summary and conclusion. As we have seen, many religious truth claims can be investigated and their plausibility determined. Since all conclusions about such claims are based on probability rather than absolute certainty, they all, including atheistic claims, require some amount of faith. As we look at the evidence in the ensuing chapters, we'll see that conclusions such as God exists and the Bible is true are certain beyond reasonable doubt. Therefore, it takes a lot more faith to be a non-Christian than it does to be a Christian. However, we've also acknowledged that some evidence alone cannot convince someone to be a Christian. Some atheists and non-Christians may reject Christianity, not because the evidence is inadequate, but because they don't want to accept it. Some people choose to suppress the truth rather than live by it. In fact, we humans have a fatal tendency to try to adjust the truth to fit our desires rather than adjusting our desires to fit with the truth. But wait, isn't there a third alternative? What about remaining agnostic like the Old Testament professor at the beginning of the chapter? He said he didn't know if God exists. Some may think that such a person is open-minded. Perhaps, but there's a big difference between being open-minded and being empty-minded. In light of the evidence, we think agnosticism is a decision to be empty-minded. After all, isn't the reason we should be open-minded so that we can recognize truth when we see it? Yes, so what are we to do when there's enough evidence to point us to the truth? For example, what should we do when with the what should we do when we see evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Should we remain open-minded as to who was, who the first president was? No, they'll be empty-minded. Some questions are closed. As we'll see, there's enough evidence regarding Christianity to draw a reasonably certain conclusion. As Mortimer Adler observed, our conclusion about God impacts every area of our lives. It is the key to finding unity and diversity and ultimate meaning in life. It is literally the most important question for every human being to address. Fortunately, if our reasoning is correct, we will discover the box top to life's puzzle at the end of our journey. So let's take the first step on that journey. It begins with the question of truth. All right, so <laughs> I love that in this first paragraph here, as we look at the evidence in this room, we'll see that conclusions such as God exists and the Bible is true are certain beyond reasonable doubt. Therefore, it takes more faith to be non-Christian than it does to be a Christian. Oh boy. Anyway, so this is uh, this is what. Um, Anyway, um, 
we'll go on and we'll see if these guys can make a compelling case. Uh, we're about uh, 27 minutes in. So I'll go for another maybe five, 10 minutes or so. Go for about 45 minutes. So um, this next page says, Chapters 1 to 2 will cover Truth about reality is knowable and the opposite of true is false. I'll then turn the page. Chapter 1. Can we handle the truth? Men stumble over the truth from time to time, but most pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. Winston Churchill In the movie A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise plays a Navy lawyer who questions a Marine colonel, played by Jack Nicholson, about the murder of one of Nicholson's men. The dramatic courtroom scene turns into a shouting match as Cruz accuses Nicholson of being complicit in the murder. Cruz, Colonel, did you order, order the code red? Judge, you don't have to answer the question. Nicholson, I think uh, I'll answer the question. You want answers? Cruz, I think I'm entitled to them. Nicholson, you want answers? Cruz, I want the truth. Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. Nicholson might as well have been yelling at all of America's at all of America rather than Cruz, because it seems that many in our country can't handle the truth. On one hand, we demand truth in virtually every area of our lives. For example, we demand truth from loved ones, no one wants lies from a spouse or a child. Doctors, we want the right medicine prescribed and the right operations performed. Stockbrokers. We demand that they tell us the truth about companies they recommend. Courts. We want them to convict only the truly guilty. Employers. We want to tell. We want them to tell us the truth and pay us fairly. Airlines. We demand truly safe planes and truly sober pilots. We also expect to be told the truth when we pick up a reference book, read an article or watch a news story. We want the truth from advertisers, teachers and politicians. We assume road signs, medicine bottles and food labels reveal the truth. In fact, we demand the truth for, for almost every facet of life that affects our money, relationships, safety or health. On the other, on the other hand, despite our unwavering demands for truth in those areas, many of us say we aren't interested in truth when it comes to morality or religion. In fact, many downright reject the idea that any religion can be true. As we're sure you've noticed, there's a huge contradiction here. Why do we demand truth in everything but morality and religion? Why do we say, that's true for you but not for me, when we're talking about morality or religion, but we never even think of such nonsense when we're talking about talking to a stockbroker about our money or a doctor about our health. Although few would admit it, our rejection of religious and moral truth is often on volitional rather than intellectual grounds. We just don't want to be held accountable to any moral standards or religious doctrine. So we blindly accept the self-defeating truth claims of politically correct intellectuals who tell us that truth does not exist. Everything is relative. There are no absolutes. It's all a matter of opinion. You ought not judge. Religion is about faith, not facts. 
Perhaps Augustine was right when he said that we love the truth when it enlightens us, but we hate it when it convicts us. Maybe we can't handle the truth. So, um, yeah, this is a uh, his little D here at um, you know moral relativism. Um, you know, like I said, like I, I aside from oh, aside from Oprah uh, doing the uh, doing a Meghan Markle, like Meghan Markle interview, um, I can't say I've heard anyone say, you know, that's true for you, but not for me, um, as like a relative, uh, like in trying to deny someone, how can I say? Yeah, like I've never heard like two religious people argue with each other and go, you know, well, that's true for you, but not for me, you know, kind of thing. It's like, I've never heard anyone, I've never heard anyone say that all religions lead to the same place. I've never heard, you know, stuff like that so it's a bit um you know i've never heard anyone say there are uh there are no absolutes that's uh you know every, everything's all a matter of opinion it's like i can't say i've ever heard anyone say that it's like maybe uh the good old straw man atheist here let me uh back to the book in order to resolve our cultural schizophrenia, we need to address four questions concerning truth. 1. What is truth? 2. Can truth be known? 3. Can truths about God be known? 4. So what? Who cares about truth? We'll cover these questions in this chapter and the next. What is truth? The truth about truth. What is truth? Very simply, Truth is telling it like it is. When the Roman governor Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth, nearly 2,000 years ago, he didn't wait for Jesus to respond. Instead, Pilate immediately acted as if he knew at least some truth. Concerning Jesus, he declared, I find no fault in this man, John 18.38. By exonerating Jesus, Pilate was telling it like it is. Truth can also be defined as that which corresponds to its object or that which describes an actual state of affairs. Pilate's judgment was true because it matched its object. It described an accurate state of affairs. Jesus really was innocent. I actually think probably the best definition of truth is uh, that which comports with reality um, or that which can be verified. Um, I think there's probably a, a better way of uh, of describing it. Um, like telling it like it is. The problem, though, is, is that if you see it from a um, from a uh, a different point of view and you don't have all the facts, then you can say that you're partially correct, but you're not really. Uh, but your interpretation might not be uh, might not be correct, and it's a bit like the. Um, the analogy I gave before about you know, kids te kids stealing things out of the cookie jar, you know, just because you saw a kid run from the kitchen, and just because you saw the uh, cookie jar empty, does not automatically mean that the child you saw run was the one who stole the cookie out of the cookie jar. Um, all you saw was a kid running, and you saw a, a cookie jar empty. So, for you to say that that kid stole the cookie, no, 
And so you've got to be a little bit careful with that. Um, whereas if, let's say, it's your second kid who had the cookie, not the first kid. So anyway, let me uh, back to the book. Contrary to what has been taught in many public schools, truth is not relative, but absolute. If something is true, it's true for all people, at all times, in all places. All truth claims are absolute, narrow, and exclusive. Just think about the claim, everything is true. That's an absolute, narrow, and exclusive claim. It excludes its opposite, i.e. it claims that the statement everything is not true is wrong. In fact, all truths exclude the opposites, even religious truths. All right, so again, contrary to what has been taught in many public schools, truth is not relative, but absolute. Um, I don't know if I quite agree with that, but... Um, because, like, especially over time, like, like, for example, with science, you know, we are discovering new things all the time, and I think you have to be uh, flexible, like... Not necessarily relative, but at least flexible in what you uh, flexible in what you accept and in what you uh, you know what you're willing to to consider. Um, I suppose just as as an example, um, let's say uh, cigarette smoking. You know, back in the fifties and sixties, everyone smoked cigarettes, and there was hardly hardly an issue. Now, if you took that same person from the sixties and put them in the two thousands, they would go, well, "Holy hell!" holy heck, um, why is no one smoking? And we told him, well, you know, there's a high pride proportion of lung cancer among cigarette smokers. And that person in the 60s will go, well, <laughs> no, I haven't got lung cancer or anything like that. And then we'll, then you show this person in the 60s all the data and, you know, well, you have to be willing to know when you're wrong. Um, Open-minded but not empty-minded, I think is a good way of putting it, but... Then, but the problem is, is that Frank is so, I'm going to say Frank, Frank is so against relative truth that he then moves a lever all the way to the other way and say, all truth claims are absolute, narrow, and exclusive. And it's like, well, no. Um, again, if we go to the truth claim that, you know, my, my son ran away from the cookie jar and the cookie jar is empty, well, yes, that is true but that's but then the claim that my son took the cookie from the cookie jar is is false because um yeah and it's no i just don't like what he's trying to do here. he's trying to he's trying to make that false dichotomy um with uh yeah, it's a very uh yes yeah, a very religious trick unfortunately um back to the book this became comically clear when a number of years ago, I, Norm, debated religious humanist Michael Constantine Kalender. Of the many atheists I debated, he was one of the few who actually read my book, Christian Apologetics, prior to the debate. When it was his turn to speak, Kalender held up my book and declared, These Christians are very narrow-minded people. I read Dr. Geiser's book. Do you know what he believes? He believes that Christianity is true and everything opposed to it is false. These Christians are very narrow-minded people. Well, Kalenda had also written a book, which I had read beforehand. It was titled Religion Without God, which is sort of like romance without a spouse. When it was my turn to speak, 
They held up Colander's book and declared, These humanists are very narrow-minded people. I read Dr. Colander's book. Do you know what he believes? He believes that humanism is true and everything opposed to it is false. These humanists are very narrow-minded people. The audience chuckled because they could see the point. Humanist truth claims are just as narrow as Christian truth claims. For if for if H is true if H humanism is true, then everything opposed to H is false. Likewise, if C Christianity is true, then anything opposed to C is false. Okay, we're about forty minutes in, so I'm going to pause, uh, stop the uh, finish reading here. So page thirty-seven, but it's not so much that every, like again, it's not that everything is in its own box. Um, I think truth is more of a Venn diagram where you can have you know things that are true under two different uh, systems or two different views or two different um, two different uh, you know I suppose paradigms but it's not the case that like everything is in its own box and nothing outside of the box can be can be accepted it's um and even in humanism, and you know, I like to think I know humanism a little bit, that you know, it's it's not so much that you're wrong because you oppose humanism, it's more why you're wrong that excludes you from humanism. So if you say that um, supernatural causation is the best explanation for mental health issues, then that's not humanist because it's not you not using the best data to get the information at hand. It's not using the best information possible. And so it's not because it opposes humanism that makes it false. It's why it opposes humanism. So that's that's probably one of the uh, one of the things that I don't like about this book so far, just on this on this reading. That yeah, it's because I can say that the very it's a very polemic us against them kind of mentality that you know everything is true absolute narrow stays in its own lane whereas no like the real world is that and i suppose for example um let's say colorblindness you know colorblindness you know if you have like let's say red green colorblind and you see something as gray then you know it, like it is technically true for you that you know that wall is gray but you get someone who is not colorblind, they'll see it as, you know, let's say pink. And, and that's just I'm looking at a pink wall at the moment. Um, you know, but then we then have to have a way of deciding, is the, uh, is the wall actually pink? And there are ways we can objectively decide that a wall is pink. But anyway. Um, but then he's got this thing about religion without God and... This uh, annoyed me a little bit because I think Christians believe they have the mortgage on religion. You know, it's like if you don't do religion our way, oh, a religion without God? Huh, that's, that's like having a romance without a spouse. It's like, no, this is this is one reason why, you know, people like, you know, Michael Kalender go, oh, geez, these Christians are so closed-minded because they're closed-minded. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, until next time, until part five, look after yourselves. Hope you're enjoying the series. Uh, feel free to contact me on Twitter at TF, at TF80pod. Feel free to head over to www.3w's.tallfriendlyatheistdad.com uh, or 
check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash TFADpod. Uh, until next time, look after yourselves, be kind to one another, stay rational. <laughs>